Hello, and welcome to We Walk the Earth podcast, where we discover together by looking at the paths of people and how they interact with this ever-evolving world we live in. I'm your host, Sergio Isauro. This podcast is an Autolab original show made by a diverse team of wonderful people, passionate to spread ideas in beautiful ways. Please share this podcast to people around you and leave a comment and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. The more support we have, the easiest it is for us to keep on delivering quality, commercial-free content for our listeners. This week's guest is Riker Vermilia. He is the founder of the nonprofit social enterprise Math Agave, which aims to create food security, biodiversity conservation, and economic development in the famine afflicted deep south of Madagascar. His experience working for the U.S. Senate on the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis led him to volunteer as an agroforestry extension volunteer for the Peace Corps in one of the most impoverished and remote regions of the world in Madagascar, where half decade of drought, exacerbated by climate change and land degradation, has created an ongoing humanitarian crisis with over one million people and 500,000 children experiencing chronic malnutrition. He is currently working to introduce a novel agroforestry and livestock management system to the drylands of southern Madagascar to break the cycle of poverty and deforestation, fueled by a fierce human spirit and the interconnection with nature. Please, let's welcome to the show Riker Vermilia. This is We Walk the Earth. Thank you for joining us. Riker, thank you for your time. Thank you. We did a tour on this ranch you're volunteering in. Yep, Via you? Organica. Via Organica where you're learning a lot of things. A lot of things, yep. And hopefully contributing a little bit, but that's yet to be seen. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure that you're bringing a fresh perspective to the place. Can you talk a little bit about why you are here in San Miguel? And yeah, like what you're learning and, and why you're yeah. learning it? Yeah, so I mean, I it's funny that you say here in San Miguel because I found the farm, you know, I guess it's in El Membrillo is the small town and it's about 35, 30 minutes outside of San Miguel. And so I found that farm first and then f figured out that San Miguel was around it afterwards. So um, that was quite the shock to realize that there was this sort of cultural, international, renowned city um, just next to the farm or, or just outside of the farm. I'm down here to learn from what they are calling the Billion Agave Project. And their idea is to use agave as a um, multifaceted tool to sort of help in the world's driest and uh, most degraded lands and areas. And for me, I was coming from, uh, I was in the Peace Corps in Madagascar, which we can go into at some point, and um, was stationed in a region called the Spiny Forest, which is extremely arid and has almost the exact same ecosystem as here in San Miguel or, or in Guanajuato, where it's two, three months of rainy season, and then, you know, 
nine, 10 months of completely dry, um, arid, hot temperatures. Um, so for me, it, once I figured out that similarity, it's, it seemed like a perfect fit to try to find some answers, um, in toward, in, in terms of helping back in Madagascar. Hmm. Yeah. So you want to learn this process and take it there. Yep. Yep. So the, the origin, I guess I'll go back to the, the very beginning when I would go to my ATM in Madagascar to get cash just to, to use for the month, it would take me about 13 hours by bus. Um, on a good day, if the bus made it. And I would pass through these sort of legacy French colonial, um, almost feudalistic plantations where they have sisal, which is an agave species that they use to make uh, rugs and, and mostly fiber. That was really interesting back in the, the age of the sailing ships. It was the rope material that allowed those ships to sort of do what they did. So it was incredibly important during that time period. And uh, since then, sisal has been sort of replaced by synthetic fibers and, and other, obviously on, on cargo ships, they, they don't use ropes anymore, um, or at least not to the same capacity. And so the, the sisal fields have become a lot less productive, but they um, are still run because they provide thousands of jobs for the local people. And in Madagascar, it's one of the bottom... 10, if not bottom five, economically wealthy countries in the world. And I think it's close to 90, if maybe a little bit less now, but uh, close to 90% of people live on under $2 a day. So it's, it's one of those places where they need, they need jobs, they need income. Yeah. And I would pass through these plantations and I would talk to my, the locals on the bus next to me and ask them, that kind of looks like what they make tequila and mezcal out of is it is anybody making liquor out of that and they would say no no just fiber and ropes only um and so once i uh was evacuated as as part of the pandemic as, as all peace corps volunteers were i had too much time on our hands as, as we all did during the pandemic and started doing some research what the difference was between the sisal and and the agave that everybody uses to make tequila and, and mezcal and and realized that it was while different was ecologically similar and had the same environmental needs okay. and, and so from there the idea developed in my mind to try to bring some of those productive more or at least more productive species of agave in terms of the sugar content hmm. over to Madagascar to use there as both a economic stabilizer and a an environmental stabilizer. Okay. And how does the process work? Yeah. So, I mean, without sort of delving into too much about mezcal and tequila, they use what amounts to the heart of the plant, the, uh, the pina, for its sugar content. So, you know, when you make any type of alcohol, it's sugar into alcohol. And in this case, the sugar comes from the, the middle of the agave there. Yeah. Um, but the agave can be huge plants, as you've seen, you know, upwards of taller than a man and, and wider than a man. So it's one of those plants that produces a lot of biomass, but the, the leaves around the middle of the plants are not really used for the agave or for the tequila or mezcal process and are kind of just wasted. Mm. And the, uh, the farm here, Vigor Organica, has uh, worked, partnered with local farmers who have developed a fermentation technique 
to take those previous waste products and turn them into something functional. Mm-hmm. And lucky enough for me, what what is the functional project product is or uh, feed for livestock, cattle, goats, sheep. So for me, it was a, a light bulb moment, sort of a perfect combination of economic potential from the pina and food security potential from the pancas and the yeah. leaves around the outside. Yeah. You sent me a video to watch before this recording, which is, you said it's a tough one to watch. Showing children and people starving in Madagascar. And it's really, really hard to see. And it's hard to grasp also the motives, you know, the reasons. As the documentary said, it's a climate change induced famine. So that's interesting. So I actually read an article just yesterday where a group of um, professors and doctors have come out and um, not necessarily challenged that assertion, but have also given some alternative theories to sort of why the the famine is occurring now that revolve around sort of agriculture and deforestation and just sort of natural in madagascar in madagascar yeah and uh just sort of natural climate fluctuations um so yes i think it's important to highlight climate's role in this but also not um sort of either overemphasize that or sort of um, Of forget about some of the other drivers of what's going on. I mean, at the end, the drivers are humans. Yes. And that's what's scary. It's hard to see these situations that in part we are responsible for and us being on the other side of the world. It's like how, how sometimes it's hard for the mind to grasp and like take action after no oh unbelievably i mean you know there's sort of a paralysis that can happen when you when you think too long about it particularly with your your own um components and and contributors to it you know i loved my time in madagascar um i was there for 10 days short of a year um but at the same time in order to get to the location where i was working i had to take a flight and, you know, if you look at sort of the contributors to the global emissions, certainly flying is a, a huge contributor to that. Yeah. And so, you know, I probably took eight flights at least to get around Madagascar. And if I think too hard about it, like, did I actually, was I, was my presence there negative given the, the emissions yeah. that it took for me to fly and the wood that was chopped down for my house and, yeah. um, you know, various components like that. And, you know, I obviously worked planting a lot of trees and if you do the numbers, it's, I think it's something like 40 to 50, maybe 80 trees to offset a single flight. Um, so, you know, it's, it's difficult to th- sort of think about your role, especially when, you know, the people there on the ground in Madagascar have never taken a flight. They've never driven a car. Yeah. They only take buses. So their impact on it is negligible at yeah. best. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's there's some deforestation concerns, but that's driven completely by necessity, yeah. as we were talking about with the famine. Um, so it's certainly difficult to think about, but for me, that difficulty is often a motivator, right? Because yeah. it's a lot easier to think about that if you've, you're somehow contributing um, yeah. or, or at least trying to contribute to yeah. the, the solutions rather than the problems. Yeah. And, and also it's, uh, 
I don't know. It says, other to say, it's like a sick system that we're living in. So we cannot isolate a situation from the whole, you know? So it's hard because, yes, like these people are already affected by the rest of the world. And one thing could be just saying like, okay, let's just not bother them anymore. But we already messed it up. So we can leave them alone, but with our mess to clean up. It's difficult. And and I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, one of the issues that I ran across was industrial agriculture has made its way to Madagascar, whether it's through plowing or through chemical inputs or chemical fertilizers and, and, um, and pesticides mostly for the agave and fibers or no, even just for subsistence farmers. Okay. Um, you know, so those, those techniques, I hate to say a lot of them, especially the chemical inputs arose out of world war two and, and having to feed large armies and particularly in Germany. And those while short-term benefits of pumping a bunch of nitrogen into the soil or killing all of the pests for that season now is creating a lot more problems in the long term than than the short-term gain. Madagascar has sort of gone through a process where the, like we did, like the Western world did in, in World War II and afterwards in which, well, isn't this great? There are no grasshoppers. We are getting a bunch more corn this season mm. and not thinking about two, four, 10 years down the road when all the pests or all the predators for the grasshoppers are also gone and yeah. all the uh, nutrients have been sucked out of the soil and the soil is, I just got a note the other day, they have massive windstorms. They call Tiumena, which basically means red wind. And it's much like the dust storm in the Midwest of the United States in which the topsoil is just getting carried away blowing and blowing off. And so, you know, they're, not only are we having to confront the globalized issues that we've created, but even even the localized issues that we've created. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's it's. I think it's one of the tricky things to dance around the micro view of things and the macro, um, because I think we live in both at the end. You know, like we live in a big system which is like the earth, the, the, the universe, if you want to get like deeper. But, which one? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It's really nice to see these projects popping up and people like you, I loved how you said that um, you came here for the farm and then you realized there's like San Miguel, a cultural like epicenter next to it. That for me is, a big big star that i want to give you i'm like this dude is is pushed by the right motives it's nice to meet people that are doing this well it's it's obviously i i got lucky in that regard i think more than anything else uh, intentional but i certainly i feel what you mean in terms of and this is not at all to take a shot at, at the people that the lovely people that we met here but the the sort of the festival culture yeah i think can look lend itself on the wrong end of that yeah. where where it purports um to have a lot of good intentions and yet you know a lot of people then go back to their jobs not necessarily 
fixing the issue or, or yeah. and rather contributing like to greenwashing, it. greenwashing, no? Sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and there's all different versions of that. And as I mentioned, with my flights in Madagascar, yeah. I'm certainly capable of, of contributing to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's this, uh, I think I've talked about him with you, Charles Eisenstein. Sure. He, mentioned, he talks about that, exactly that, about flights in one of his books. And he, ma he does a lot of conferences around the world. And he says, I'm, it hurts to know that I'm taking these flights. But for one side, I feel like I'm doing something good and I'm enjoying it. It's sometimes counterintuitive to think like that, but he has a theory that if we will just do what we love, we, things will level out by themselves. You know, like it's us forcing ourselves to do things that we don't really, that we think we need, but that we don't. And there's like a fine line. There's a fine line because you can go over it and just go, yeah, I'm, I really enjoy having a, a big-ass mansion and a yacht. This is what I love. And then like, okay, dude, maybe not that much hedonism. I don't know. Yeah, um, well, and you look at it, just your talking reminds me of, we just had the, I think it was COP26, which is supposed to be the changing point for our species and yeah. all these leaders taking all these flights. I think it was into <laughs> Ireland. And, and then you see President Biden falling asleep while the speaker's talking about how this is the most game-changing moment yeah. and you have the capability and you realize that, yes, you can have the best of, tensions to, best of intentions to go to one of these events or to yeah. do what I'm doing and come down here to try to learn um, you know, a project that will make things better, but follow through, like you were saying, the doing rather than just sort of the thinking about it, I yeah. think is critical. Yeah. And also, I think this idea of taking responsibility in every level, you know, because if we are still expecting big politicians that attend COP26 or these conferences to change things by themselves, we're already losing. Yes, we got to go there. We got to ma manifest our needs and our wants. And we got to help them see what's happening on the ground because they don't see it. They're in their like private jet planes and having these fancy dinners and they don't see it. They just read a report and that's it. But we have to do things in our level, acknowledging responsibility and saying like, hey, dude, wake up, Biden. Dude, wake up, like literally, like wake literally, up. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think you're right. You know, the word is, is often thrown around these days, but it, I think it fits perfectly both for this situation and, and in generally, but the intentionality, yeah. uh, the thinking of what is going into any sort of process or thing that you're purchasing or doing. And I, I get irrationally frustrated by people using plastic bags or yeah. things like that in, in which the overall impact of a single plastic bag is not that much. And so yelling at somebody on the street or for using one is going to serve absolutely no purpose. But the scope and scale, once you start to add all that up, really does become an issue. And particularly in Madagascar, where um, you sort of have this idea of this pristine 
land with um, all these rare, unique animals and and plants, the trees, How, like, the trees, the baobabs, right? The like, baobabs. and the the lemurs, iconic, visually yeah. iconic yeah. species, and then to see batteries in the field and mm. plastic um, bottles and bags strewn everywhere, and you think well, this wasn't here even. 50, 60 years ago, much less 100, 200. Yeah. And sort of to see to see the change we can drive in the negative is pretty disheartening, but also makes you realize it's just that short term, right? We do have the capabilities of changing things if we do it at scale. Bad things happen fast. Yeah. So why can't we make good things happen fast? Exactly. And Respecting nature's processes and everything, but I think we can do something. Yeah, and I think nature is trying to tell us that. Um, you know, you sort of look at any indigenous culture that um, has has had any long-term success, whether it was in the Amazon or, or the Native mm -hmm. Americans before before colonialism, or even Madagascar just a uh, hundred years ago. Those systems were well maintained mm -hmm. because people viewed themselves as inside of the system, as part yeah, of the system, part. rather than this, I hate to say it, but like Western Christianized idea that we are God's image yeah. rather than God being our image. Yeah. And it, I think it's certainly warped the way humans interact with, with the planet. I read a, a fascinating book called, Are We Intelligent Enough to Know How Intelligent Animals Are? <laughs> and it was a history of the studies that humans have done on animals to try to teach chimpanzees how to sign language or speak English rather than just observing and viewing chimpanzees and learning all of the incredible intelligent tools and communications and social interactions that yeah. they have that aren't quote unquote human. And obviously chimpanzees are the most human, but you go to octopus or ants and yeah, wherever, wow. basically trees, the underground root system of trees and, and mycorrhizal fungi and, and all the interactions that are going on there and, and the communication yeah. that is going on there that we are just now to go back to the book just now becoming intelligent enough to view in its own right rather than to view it as some bastardized version of human intelligence yeah totally totally in seeing uh rise in media communicating more and more these things and it's it feels good no like at least media being something that messes with us and the planet but having it being used in these ways you know like these fungi documentaries and i don't know there's no, so there's many soil documentaries, soil documentaries and, and, and farming yeah. and it's nice i do think well like i really see there's like a big mission to kind of fix fix or stop destroying basically because nature i think will heal but nature will we just need just to fine stop dumping shit out there yeah just stop just stop and nature will heal we may not even need to like do this spreadsheets to help nature like Nature's got the real spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, yes. They, nature has the math figured out very um, well. It's ruth ruthlessly efficient in that yeah, regard. Yeah, yeah. So just like step back a little bit. But I do feel there's some, well, I was going to say like this mission of coming back to connecting 
with what's around us. And there's so many levels in this mission. Like, for example, you, I see you as a man on the field kind of person, which I love to be for a day or two, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, but I'm trying to do the communications part of it. People need to know about this. Let's talk about this. Uh, and there's other people that need to do the math. And, you know, like it's, it's, I don't know, it's nice to see people around me finding their spot, which is tricky. It's hard. It's absolutely tricky. And that was what I was going to say. I, I appreciate the, um, the, the vision of myself as the man in the field, but it's certainly taken me a while to, to get to the understanding that's where I want to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had sort of an entirely different career in banking and finance policy. That oh, was, really? Yeah, that was so far <laughs> different than this. But sort of as part of those realizations about how to start contributing, I, I really thought that my my best avenue to do that would be in the field. Whereas, you know, I think you've, you found your best avenue to do that through communication. And I think like you were talking about earlier, the gentleman who, who said that they need to, while also doing good, do what makes them happy or, or, or interest them. And so I think that you can't really do one without the other. Mm. I think there's a phrase that I'm not even sure the direct provenance of, but I certainly like it as sort of the happy warrior. And, and if you're mm. unhappy in whatever you're fighting, the an analogy of war that you're fighting, I don't think you'll be able to do it, yeah. not necessarily successfully, but certainly um, I think it's a key component. It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. We gotta make it fun. Yeah, we're at the end of the day, we're, we're individuals and we can't just masochism can be fun too if that's your thing but certainly yeah. not yeah yeah not and, and also also not really going to toxic positivity sure yes being an optimist is needed to stay afloat these days and it's good it's good it's good um but you know it's it's useless without realism exactly and without like doing things yeah there's a master Korean farmer, Young Sang Cho, that I love reading, and he's very philosophical in his farming, which I find fascinating. Mm. His two um, guiding lights or his two sort of princi principles that he holds when he formulates his farming ideas are Jesus Christ and Karl Marx, which I <laughs> find fascinating. Um, but what he says in particular that stuck with me is that nothing is good or bad exclusively in its own right it's about the amount it's about how you use it mm -hmm. so you can put fertilizer into the soil and that's great up until a point yeah. and then you start burning the plants or allowing pests to come in or diseases and pesticide is great until you start killing off the birds that are also protecting mm -hmm. your plants and so he has this idea of everything is good and bad and, yeah. and nothing is exclusively good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the way in which we see these limits of when it's starting to be bad, I think they are blurred out by industrialization. You know, like we are buying veggies on the supermarket not having one clue of who planted them, where, what's the process, what chemicals. So we are so detached How did from it get it there? Yeah. that there's no one checking. There's some loss 
checking, but these laws are like... But unfortunately, um, it, like we said earlier, it comes back to you checking. Yeah, like I have to like intentionally go on and ask or buy somewhere that will inform me. Sure. It's really crazy how you really change. It's easier to ch change things when you go like local. When you try to like this idea of, okay, it just, everything starts to make sense because if things don't have to be flown in an airplane for you to eat them, then that's a big step already. And then you know who's planting the avocados and you can probably even go to his house and see the avocado tree. I don't know, you know, like that easily removes so much of the damaging factors on things, on clothes, on food, on on media, on a lot of things. And on people. And we saw both in a laughably small way and, and uh, in a you know terribly large way between the cargo ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. I don't know if you remember that. I no. A couple months back, you know, one of those giant super container ships. Yeah. Got turned, I don't know, couldn't have been more than 45 degrees off course inside of the Suez Canal and blocked, I think it was close to 30% of all shipping in around the world wow. that, that passes through this canal. And people were freaking out because they weren't going to get their components <laughs> to make the phones and, yeah. and they weren't, there were vegetables that were rotting on the ships. And so it was this, again, laughably small mistake that basically blocked up 30% or some amount of, of the world's trade. And then the tragically large version of that was the pandemic where everything shut down and we sort of realized, well, like, huh, we don't have the thing to make this and that goes into this other thing. And, and now all of a sudden we have shortages of X, Y, and Z that have, are still reverberating right now. You know, I remember somebody saying that Joe Biden was going to have trouble or the Democrats were going to have trouble because people weren't going to get their knickknacks and their toys in time for Christmas. And that was going to oh be a huge God. political problem. Um, and so it's, I think we've seen recently how fragile that yeah. system of moving things around for pure cost efficiency mechanisms rather than, hmm. I don't even know the right word, but sort of efficiency of life rather than efficiency of cost. And I think we've People that know me know that I'm no fan of, of industrialization or, or capitalism even. And I think a lot of our problem, a lot of the problems within that system are, are starting to reveal themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to a friend yesterday about how a lot of the consequences of this acts of buying, of supporting businesses or industries that are not fair to the earth. It's crazy how they, most of the times, the consequences don't show up in front of us. And that's, re, that's making it so hard for us to realize it. We were talking about earlier about Madagascar, like this country that it's literally on the other side of the planet from us right now being affected by the decisions of everyone. The idea of hidden violence, I think, mm. goes to this a lot, yeah. is, is we are shocked and moved to action by 
the violence that we can see, whether yeah, it's locally, like next door. whether it's next door or even within the media. Yeah. But I think the media has figured out, particularly since 9-11, that sort of that shocking level of violence will attract eyes and attract attention. Um, and you know, I do have to make fun of myself a little bit here for talking about this locality and localness and how great that is while I'm also aiming to create a, a company in Madagascar that is will ship things around the world. So I realized my hypocrisy within that. But again, to talk specifically about Madagascar, mica is a sort of a flaky mineral that is doesn't conduct heat. And so it's used in every single electronic device. Our, our um, rocket ships and, and satellites, our phones, our computers, our cars, and a lot of it is mined by children in this southern region of Madagascar. And yeah, and it's sort of hidden violence yeah. in, until it's presented to you. But nobody thinks when they're buying a phone that thinks about the, the violence that goes into that. Mm. So recognizing that, again, the intentionality is, is key. Wow. Yeah. Going back to you saying, like, the hypocrisy of doing a company there... Yeah, but uh, I think at least you're aware of these things. And I, I I, think that you're one of the people that are going to try to make it as, as consciously as possible and intentional. But the thing is, even though we don't want to acknowledge it, we're already in a global community. So th there's people that need help. Um and there's a few, very few people doing it. Why do you think that is? I think uh, not necessarily the, the help, a lot of people, everybody needs help at, at any point in their lives, but um, why do you think there is such a shortage of people, to flip the questions back on you, yeah. a shortage of people that are willing to do this? One of the, the things that I keep hearing in the, uh, my online class that I'm doing is that corporations want to go net zero and billionaires want to fund these help helping projects. And, and yet at some point it's also seems like a, an excuse for them to build their rocket ships and an excuse yeah. for them to exert control. If you look at the, the Bill Gates foundation and what they do with, with the healthcare provision, both in America, but internationally, basically you can't run an international health organization without complying with what Bill Gates and his funding will allow you to do. Okay. And so it's to, to go back to the question is, is why do you think there's this vocal acknowledgement or vocal admission that things need to be done? And yet there is such a lack of follow through from people with the power and the money. I, I would say that it's, it's different for someone to tell you that something needs to be done and for you to understand it in a mental level like it might make sense like you do one plus one equals two and then you're like yeah, yeah let's do this it's gonna be good blah, 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 blah. but it's another thing to feel it in your body it's another thing to f to see how someone gets like a styrofoam cup and have this pain in your stomach, like, no, 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 you know? I don't think we all feel that. Um, 
yeah, people know that it's bad. If you ask people around, they'll say like, yeah, yes, plastic bags are bad. But when you like feel it, I think that's the difference. And a lot of these people that take the decisions are not there and are not there in the ground, but also are not there emotionally or mentally. They're like living another, like other realities. It's almost a self self-preservation mechanism. If you have that ability to change things and you're not, how do you then live with yourself? Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. I, and so I think there's a head in the sand type yeah. situation where it's just too difficult to look at head and, on. And also, I think that's why it's a cliche, but that's why money doesn't buy happiness. And we're tricking ourselves to thinking that wealth is money and wealth is not like you you can meet someone that's the happiest and has a lot of challenges but like is the happiest and doesn't fly private jets and doesn't you know to yeah to go back to my time in madagascar i can't tell you how many times i saw incredibly happy people in some of the most destitute situations i, I think you're right but to push back that on that a little bit, um, money does buy happiness in that if you're starving, it can buy you food. Of course, you know. So, but it's there's a very quickly reached level of human comfort, and then I think anything to your point, anything beyond mm -hmm. that sort of level of just immediate comfort is luxury and yeah. and will not bring you happiness. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and it's crazy because a lot of the times the situations where people start to collect a lot of economical wealth it's so crazy Riker because a lot of the situations make you lonely and push you even further away from what you want which is being connected which is so ironic it's so ironic it's really sad, I think, that, and I don't know what it is exactly where at least Western culture went wrong, where it, and I think it, it's showing up in, in politics a lot too, where people are seeking connection and there are no real institutional mechanisms to provide that connection. We are forced to go out and find it ourselves. Mm. Um, and I've been able to very lucky to be able to find that in sports and friends and obviously the peace corps was a a, a incredible place to connect with and um work towards a, a collective goal and, and mission but if you're not sort of going back to the overused word intentionally if you're not doing that intentionally i think you can very easily become adrift within your life and i've, I've obviously had moments i think we all have of feeling adrift within our own lives yeah 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 for sure yeah community is so important intentional finding towards, and building yeah, to your point, towards, building it yeah i was talking to jess the other day with a recording right and and yeah i think a lot of the did she called it dislocation from our wild sites is causing this because our our wild selves include this community 
interactions and rituals and rites of passage and like these things that are embedded in our DNA and we become dislocated from them and are like lost and then because we're lost we're just trying to like uh, like do like control what's around us and and in the short term yeah yeah, exactly like quick fixes yeah and I I love talking to people like Jess who because I still as much as I I'm trying to get recollected, reconnected with the land and reconnected with what it means to be a wild human. I value conversations with people like her because I, I do feel like she is more connected with that. Mm-hmm. And I still almost feel like an, an outsider looking in at the natural human condition. As I mentioned earlier, I spent you know five years um, in the U.S. Senate working on finance and banking and then more time outside of that trying to figure out what I really wanted to do. And it was looking at how ineffectual our policies were from a political standpoint, if nature was, nature doesn't care if our insurance policy is X, Y, or Z, it's going to flood Miami waterfront real estate 30 times a year. It doesn't matter how good our market structure laws are. If there's a hurricane that's going to shut down Manhattan every five, 10, 15 years, that was sort of an awakening for me and, and realizing that I need to get back in touch with that. But obviously I think there's so many more people that are farther along that road than I am. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. It's, but it's just, it's finding, unfortunately, again, to go back to the Western culture, we've lost any avenues to, to find ourselves in that form. Yeah. And so we're really relying on indigenous and, and, um, non-Western cultures to show us the road. I think there's a very funny, and I'm obviously part of it, but there's a very funny pattern that I've seen of older white men moving towards Buddhism or Hinduism or some of these Eastern religions that, that have a greater idea of what it means to lose yourself in sort of the wild human. I'm obviously a part of that. I've following in those footsteps uh, a little bit, but it's certainly a um, a pattern that I've noticed. And why do you think that pattern is happening? Because, you know, it goes back to the, the money can't buy happiness thing. I think yeah. there's white, privileged white men have so few challenges in their life that at some point they reached a, that level of comfort in which anything on top of that doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. And they go searching out for, for deeper meaning. Yeah. When you reach this level of comfort that we're talking about, you you have choices. Power gives you choices. I don't think people should stop having choices. But the thing is that everyone should have choices, not just us white dudes. I don't remember who I heard this from, but I, I think it, it was like a DJ probably. <laughs> she was saying that, hey, guys, like this, college degrees and these uh, masters and PhDs. This education is not is not for you to gain more power and privilege. It's for you to give other people power and privilege that don't have the options. Um, it really stuck with me because it is a responsibility. If you're privileged, even though you don't want that responsibility, you have it. We have it. Um, 
it's hard to grasp. Yeah, and I think it goes back to the people not wanting to view it or, or looking at it and it's too difficult to look at yeah. in, in their own lives. But, you know, I've obviously had the realization that by looking at it, foreseeing it, what it is, and then accepting it, um, you've almost freed yourself a little bit. Yeah. And, and to your point, it's like figure out then how you're going to use that privilege. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think it's, it's a process mm. and everybody's on different steps on that path. Um, but, uh, it's, it's certainly something that I think once you acknowledge it and, and sort of view it for what it is, um, it, it becomes easier to handle. Yeah. 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 So you are hoping to go back to Madagascar soonish or soonish as soon as i can um okay. you know they've they've just recently opened up borders but yeah. obviously with different conditions in the world it, you, yeah. anybody that tells you that they know what's going to happen a couple months from now is trying to yeah. bullshit you um <laughs> i mean right yeah totally yeah but yeah i've still have connections with some organizations on the ground there that i'm hoping to work with and then trying to make my own eventually yeah which to go back to the idea that all these companies and rich people want to invest in these regenerative mechanisms there's a uh, in my class, I, I think there's like um, 80, it's an agroforestry class online. And there's about 85 of us in our cohort from, there's probably 20 in South America and 15 in Africa and 20 in Southeast Asia and 25 in Europe or whatever the numbers are. And all of us have these sort of re regenerative ideas and regenerative projects. And yet all of us are seeing this huge gap in between what people are saying they want to fund and where the funds are actually going on the ground. Okay. Which is very frustrating because mm. you've got all these companies pledging zero, zero targets by 2030 and zero X by whatever. And none of the work, at least it's very difficult to see where their work is going in on the ground beyond just those statements. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, there are a lot of people that are on this path of regeneration and really trying to think about what that means at, in each local level, but the connection is missing. And I really don't know how we bridge that gap between sort of these corporate rich donor intentions and the real work that's going on the ground. I think it's going to take people like you, the communicators. Yeah. 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 Telling the story, you know? Telling the story. Telling the story in a... It's hard, like in a clean way, like non-biased. Because also it can get really tricky and dramatic. And maybe you want to do that, but it's also like using the same thing well, back I, again. I don't know. No, I think it's, it's tricky. It's so tricky. That's the word I was going to go back to myself because I think I... I'm not good at that. <laughs> I am too willing to, I love this, not that I do it well, but the, I love the phrase, speak truth to power. And mm -hmm. I, I am, I don't necessarily think that's the best. It feels good, yeah. but I don't think that's the best way to get people to change themselves. I, I think it, if you're almost, I'm almost too accusatory in, in the idea that you've, created this problem you say you want to fix it but you're not doing anything to do it 
and that automatically puts people on the defensive yeah. and doesn't make them want to help you. Yeah. <laughs> and so I recognize that in myself, but I certainly think that it's it'll take people better than I am to bridge that gap between to sort of shepherd shepherd along the folks that have good intentions but maybe aren't following through on them. Yeah. Whereas I'm too willing to point at their failures and say, hurry the fuck along. <laughs> it's one of those things that we men and the patriarchal culture we need to heal is first of all re like acknowledging we don't know it all we might be wrong we're probably wrong with most of what we do and say i, I love being proven wrong yeah and and then when i think when we when you're talking to someone and then you level with them and say like we are all We're both in this together. We're both probably messing up. It's fine. Let's talk about it. Let's learn from it. And then let's move on. The, it's, this is so masculine to be, want to be on top of everything and want to be right all the time and stuff. But it's, I don't know, it, it hurts us so much. Um, just, yeah, like acknowledging we're learning. Yeah, and I struggle with that it's hard it's hard um yeah but it's yeah it's a process it's a process yeah and communicating this to the people that have the power the wallets the companies all very masculine a, yeah, areas. yeah yeah and it, it's a very tough job everyone like also the people like more in the ground The people doing the hard, hard, hard work because you're encountering all these problems. Like scientists today, yes, there's some amazing discoveries and stuff, but like science is scary. A dear friend, Elias, said, if you're not worried about where we're going, you're not reading the right papers. Science is a fascinating uh, approach. It's It's obviously one that It relies on imperial, like imperial data, not imperial data, empirical, empirical data. Imperial. I, I kind of like imperial data. <laughs> well, <laughs> to go back to the sounds problem. legit. <laughs> yeah, uh, empirical data and and observation and um, sort of a, a humbleness to recognize what you don't know, yeah. but then at the same time, I to then take what you've learned and then apply it. Um, I think is very difficult and I'm not sure science does the best job mm. of really taking data and knowledge and turning it into action. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is the communication end of it and how best to take data that might be scary or data that is new and not necessarily reproven over and over again and figure out how to bring that to the world is extremely difficult. And then putting it into practice is a whole another a whole nother challenge, mm. but it, it does seem to be the one mechanism we do have that at its heart acknowledges what we don't know things. Yeah. So I, I find that very useful. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting science. I, I love this infinite search. I love that. I really love that. Uh, and if, when you really get in tune with what that means, that we're also infinitely ignorant yeah uh, yes. and that's why we're infinitely researching things yeah. always climbing to a new height just yeah. to see oh man there's 
yeah. so much more we haven't seen yeah, or yeah, don't yeah. know. Yeah. And it's, I think, yeah, I think it's good, like you said, to also be conscious about how it's applied because that's like the... <sighs> How to incorporate knowledge yeah. into the human yeah. interaction, yeah. And not just believing we are inventing the band-aid, the perfect band-aid for our problems, and then having that band-aid pollute sure. the river or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's basically what most of technology is doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember seeing something with solar panels mm -hmm. and the obviously solar is going to be huge in our move away from fossil fuels. But then you look at what goes into solar panels and yeah. it's conflict minerals and all of these different extractive resources that we don't know how long the shelf life for solar panels are and whether or not we can reuse some of those resources. So then does the waste from our solar panel production almost create larger problems. Wow. Certainly nuclear is one of those things, right? Where nuclear is this has long been this idea of clean energy relative to emissions. But then you look, we have no place to put nuclear waste. Yeah. Like we have n no idea what to do with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously the issues that have happened with when nuclear has gone really wrong have, have also contaminated our planet in, in horrific ways. So yeah, the more you look at everything, it goes back to the good and bad. Every everything is good and bad. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's a hard idea to wrap the mind around. Do we really need how to figure out how to make more energy or should we just turn the lights off for a few hours every day? nature is forcing it to do this in mexico city and I, I bet in many other cities there is like power there's starting to be power shortages and water they're like okay like from like on tuesday you cannot get any fresh water shower on monday we're doing it but we, we might just better do it consciously yeah because like we we should we have to do it consciously because we are doing we're certainly not right now and it's revealing our problems. I don't yeah. know if you saw Texas lost power for a while yeah. recently. Yeah. And it reveals the fragility to go back to the local and, and the transportation issues. It reveals how fragile our perceived strong yeah. social and cultural existences. Yeah. All it takes is a lack of refrigeration for a yeah. week or two and yeah. things start and, to shut down. Yeah. And also social media collapsing for a day and the world going crazy. Well, certainly in, in Latin America where WhatsApp is one of the, the main forms <laughs> yeah, of yeah. communication and to have our communication and our energy and our basically all of our systems concentrated into these very few organizations or yeah. channels it's extremely dangerous redundancy is is critical in systems for a reason and for efficiency's sake we've basically removed all redundancy yeah yeah it's like uh, monocrops like not monocrops but, but sure yeah. that's certainly a great example of that where you know if you have one pest that attacks that one crop your whole field is now useless. Yeah. Whereas if at least you grew two different crops, at the very least, that one pest that came in that may just feed on corn, 
is now not necessarily going to feed on the beans or the squash that you've included within that system. Yeah. Monocropping is absolutely a perfect example of our, our failure and redundancy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Diversity. Diversity in, in everything that we do. But unfortunately, we've siloed ourselves at both as people and, and as industries and as everything into these tight, bounded it's humanity. We're good at being tribes. Yeah, yeah. Small tribes. Small tribes. Small tribes. Uh, it gets out of control when it gets too big. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very interesting time we're living. It's thrilling for me. Uh, it's like, ooh, like this is big. It's beyond... Um, it, it, I'm not sure there's... I'm, you know, this is very... Uh, um, not selfish, but a very limited view, but... I can't imagine there's been another time in human history where we've had the self-realization of how fast things are changing mm. and how dramatically and our impact in that. I, I can't imagine during the downfall of Rome, they were witnessing the move from like a computer that took up the size of the room we're in now to the ability to launch satellites on our pocket phones yeah pocket computer not even phones anymore they're pocket computers yeah um yeah so i mean i, I think our brains are having to wrap wrap yeah. around so many more ideas than have ever been yeah. introduced even just a hundred years ago much less it's, thousands it's too much it's too much i mean we've we have forced ourselves into being a big part of of the global earth system but now we're facing the responsibilities of being that. Yep. Like like I said earlier, we thought ourselves as outside of nature and yeah. and nature is saying, Okay, you got you yeah. took control. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Steer the steer the boat. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to see where your path goes, Riker. I'm really curious and very positive about whatever is gonna come for you. Thank you. And it, it took me a while to, I think, get to that point myself. I'm also interested in where I'm going to go. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've got ideas. But uh, if the world has shown us anything in the past couple of years, it's that, that the best laid plans and all that tend to go awry, whether from outside forces or, or internal. But yeah, I, you know, I had a... Um, uh, psychedelic trip not too long ago in in which i was just told to sort of keep doing what i'm doing <laughs> and and you know whoever told me that it may have been my own brain certainly has given me a sense of confidence that i don't think i would other ha otherwise have in this turbulent world there's a lot of times whether it was getting told i had 24 hours to leave my village in Madagascar because we were getting evacuated or whether it was sitting through the first couple of months of the pandemic, trying to just find something to do with my time. There's a lot of moments where I had self-doubt. And I think that being able to forgive yourself in a way, but more just be being more forgiving, maybe less the, the post tense than the current tense, yeah. just being more forgiving of of your failures and acknowledging that 
the only thing you can do is try your best and and then there therefore focusing on that is is really the only way to to move forward mm. has just given me a, a bit of calm a bit of ease yeah in terms of chasing down what are some kind of crazy ideas and and, and not necessarily crazy but at least different than yeah. the current situation um, I feel happy in in the in this path of going into the unknown and, and figuring it out as I mm. go. So yeah, as a, to, to wrap up a long rambling statement, I'm also interested to see where I go. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Riker, thank for you, your sir. time. Thank you, Sergio. Really lovely talk. And thank you for the tour on ah, the ranch yes. the other day. That was amazing. Please, you know, I think it it helps. You, you will do a much better job communicating those ideas to the world, even if not directly, just within your within your, carrying them within your person and taking mm -hmm. them on to your, your next conversation and the one after that. And, and who knows where it'll pop up next, but I think just introducing you to those, to that place and to those ideas will allow both the place and the ideas to grow beyond anything that I could do. is thin it is easier to dance the roots of my familiar darkened by the blackness of the cloth i see what is there because only the blind escape social truth the rest of us are lying soothing ourselves with momentary pleasure and perpetually missing the point to choose to be blind is to cut your own veins while digging your grave the momentum of misery is too hard to find so we consistently choose to be blind Yet truth is a relentless hunter. It will come for you in red or gold, disguised as pain or pleasure. It's out of measure the love we have and the pain we inflict on ourselves, the one we leave on the shelves for years. It sits next to jars of tears I'm not used to looking after. Sometimes the idea of the wound hurts more than the wound itself. That was Poetry Forest, featuring an untitled poem written by Virginia Viglier. If you want to support her work focused on social justice and feminism, go to the links in the show notes of this episode and dig in. We Walk the Earth is a Nautilab original and is produced by me, Sergio Isauro. The music in this episode was produced by Tejedor. Poetry Forest by Virginia Vigliar. Editing by Miguel Andrade. 
Mixing by Samuel Peñalba. Executive Production, Jorge González. Content Strategy, Sofía Benedict. If you like this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. This will help us keep going, creating and igniting curiosity in people all over. This is We Walk the Earth. Thank you for listening. Until next time.